If you want to learn how to gain insights you can act on and solve business problems with data, all while building a data-driven culture at your organization, sign up for Pragmatic Institute's new course, Data Science for Business Leaders. Find out more at pragmaticinstitute.com data. very, very pleased to have Zach King with us. He is a senior data scientist at GoDaddy, where he uses knowledge of data structures, predictive analytics, and statistical modeling. He works in the quantitative marketing department, developing production-capable predictive models, which is not only hard to say, but I imagine uh, a little difficult to build, and is focused on customer behavior and a customer lifetime value. And I have to be honest, throughout my career, there's, there's one metric that is among the most powerful, I think, to think about, and that is customer lifetime value. And so really, really, really excited, Zach, that you're going to be digging in today. And so I'm just going to turn it over to you and let you take it away. Awesome. Thank you for that glowing introduction, Rebecca. Um, hopefully my presentation is uh, useful and, and insightful so I can live up to that. <laughs> but just getting kind of right into the um, into the material, this is a little bit about me. I've been at GoDaddy for about four years. I was brought on at GoDaddy to work specifically on solving customer lifetime value prediction problems. So that's what I've spent the bulk of my career here working on. I also have an additional three years, so a total of seven years uh, experience in data science. Uh, and I started my career out at Intel Corporation. Throughout my uh, academic journey, I've received a Master of Science in predictive, predictive Analytics. And I'm also currently, because I'm, I guess, uh, self-sadistic, working on a master's degree in computer science uh, at University of Illinois. So um, that's a little bit about me. I think the takeaway from this is I, you know, I love to continually learn and, and try to push myself to go deeper into technical areas and to constantly evolve and express my skills um, to solve business problems. So a little bit about GoDaddy. Everybody or most everybody has probably heard of GoDaddy. We were established quite a long time ago, at least for a tech company back in 1997. And this was during the uh, golden era of the of the dot com days, you know, right before the bubble popped way back when. And uh, GoDaddy focused on basically getting people to register domain names uh, and then making a profit off of those uh, registrations. And so throughout its journey um, to that end, it's become one of the largest or the largest web host in the world as of 2018. But what a lot of people might not know is that GoDaddy goes far beyond just offering domain name registration and web hosting. There's also content management, uh, e-commerce and payment solutions, processing services with hardware, um, telephony products, uh, on and on and on. So GoDaddy is more of a holistic uh, it takes a holistic approach to its customer base to try to basically enable them to do anything that they can think of with uh, online presence, which I think is uh, important to point out because it's quite a bit different. The vision has you know, evolved quite a bit from its uh, early days. But one thing that has stayed constant is that the vast majority of GoDaddy's business is subscription-based. So and that's different from you know, obviously like Amazon, where you're, you know, if you're just buying retail products, you go and you buy something and it's a, you know, it's a transaction and then there's no recurring payment that they get from you. So it's not a subscription. You may or may not buy something else in the future. Uh, your purchasing uh, behavior can be very sporadic. So the implications of that are uh, significant when it comes to predicting customer lifetime value, which we'll, we'll talk about. So just uh, another few seconds to plug GoDaddy and what we do. So 
one of the, the the big things that we talk about around here is enabling everyday entrepreneurs. So an everyday entrepreneur in GoDaddy's definition is anybody who maybe it's just a side hustle that somebody has, you know, alongside their, their main job, their main gig, or maybe somebody has decided to start a business all on their own, decided to, you know, stop being um, a member of a corporation and, and start their own, or maybe they're just a, you know, yeah, they're just self-employed. Well, there's a whole host of options and products and tools that GoDaddy offers to enable those people to be the best entrepreneurs that they possibly can be. So I think looking at GoDaddy from that lens, it's a lot more exciting than, you know, like I was saying earlier, which is you know, the traditional way of thinking about GoDaddy is just a domain uh, registrar. So having said that, uh, another thing that GoDaddy does, which is sort of a differentiator, is we have these customer care representatives that we call guides. And so guides uh, are a lot more than just, you know, somebody you call and they help you out uh, with a technical problem or you call and you want to buy something and they take your order. They're there to be more of like a, a Sherpa for you, if you would, in your um, entrepreneurial endeavor. So they can help offer product recommendations, help you, you know, solve problems that you might be having in your business, either through direct support or through offering product that might solve, you know, individual problems. So it's one of the secret sauces that we have at GoDaddy that keeps, you know, customers try to trying to keep customers uh, coming back and renewing their subscriptions. And these are a few, I won't go into a whole lot of details with these folks, but these are a few customers that GoDaddy has done profiles on. And so we have a pretty diverse base of customers and the endeavors that they undertake are you know, very diverse and, and very exciting. So these are like some really interesting stories that GoDaddy uh, has helped basically enable in, through you know, our products and services. So the plug for GoDaddy is over. We can get into the good stuff. Customer lifetime value, uh, CLV. So what, what is... I just want to talk about terminology a little bit so that there's no confusion. It's pretty common, at least in my experience, to mix and match these terms together. So don't get too caught up on in the terminology. Basically, customer lifetime value, CLV, lifetime value, LTV, that's they're the same thing. And then when you start talking about predictions, you know, you would say the predicted lifetime value or the predicted CLV or PCLV or PLTV. So hopefully everybody gets the point about terminology because I'll be mixing the terminology around as I go. And uh, most of the time, it pretty much just means the same thing. So what's a more formal definition of customer lifetime value? You might ask, and here you go. <laughs> I won't get into this formula, but it's pretty simple. If, if you want to just boil it down to its most uh, simple definition, it's a summation of cash flow expected at various periods into the future, multiplied by the probability that somebody is going to purchase something. And the cash flow associated with that purchase would be multiplied by the probability that they would actually purchase it. And then traditionally as well, there's a discount factor applied for the time period. And that's to account for, I guess, cost of capital. So you can take into account how the time, basically the time value of money. But I think the point here is there are formal definitions, so to say, for LTV, but it should really vary. Uh, depending on how you want to take advantage of LTV. So it's not one of those things, in my opinion, that you really have to use like a, a hard and fast rule for uh, defining for your individual use cases. So if you're going to start looking at CLV as a metric in your in your company, I think you should just do whatever makes sense for your particular usage of, of, the, uh, of the metric. So, okay, CLV, that's great. So intuitively, it makes sense. Uh, you understand how much a customer is worth. And that seems like it should be valid 
valuable, right? But what exactly do you do with that? And this calls to mind for me anyway, uh, the old South Park episode. I don't know if there are any other South Park fans in the call, but I'm a huge South Park fan. And this is a, an old episode where they had these little guys called underpants gnomes and underpants gnomes go into people's bedrooms at night and steal their underwear and then take them back to their little gnome lair. And the whole idea that they have is they're going to go steal the underwear and then somehow they're going to make a profit. But the joke of the episode is they never really figure out what to do with the underwear. So there's this problem between going from the base idea and then actually monetizing, you know, monetizing that idea. So now that we understand what CLVU is, uh, like, what are we going to do with that in order to use it to our advantage? So here's a few um, use cases. The first one's really interesting, and not everybody thinks about things this way, but there's some pretty strong advocates for actually looking at corporate and uh, financial valuation of businesses, where instead of looking at you know the book value of a company, like its uh, assets and its liabilities and so forth, why not evaluate the company or give the company a value based on the worth of its customer base? And so that starts to really make sense in particular for subscription-based businesses, right? Because there's a certain expectation that people are going to continually renew their products into the future. So that's future cash flow that's going to come into the business that doesn't really get accounted for if you're just looking at assets and uh, more of the, you know, more of the top-down ways of evaluating a company's worth. So there's a, an idea that perhaps corporations should be more valued on this customer-centric approach, which is a really compelling idea. So that's one way that you could use customer lifetime value. And if you're looking forward, of course, you're predicting uh, lifetime value. So that's why it would be PLTV. Another like more tactical and immediately impactful way that you could use customer lifetime value is through customer acquisition uh, and optimizing how much uh, you make from your customers based on how much you're willing to spend for them and then how much you know, they're likely to return to the company over the course of their lifetime. So this is particularly relevant uh, in the marketing space at GoDaddy because we spend over $250 million uh, a year on marketing. So understanding uh, how we're uh, allocating that money preferably such that it optimizes long-term value is important to GoDaddy. So you can't do that until you have an understanding of how much your customers are worth long-term and being able to build a model to predict that worth into the future in the future. So getting into the more of the marketing details for how GoDaddy uses customer lifetime value. If you think about paid search advertising, so if you punch into Google domain name registration, you're almost guaranteed to see a, a, a GoDaddy ad in the very first uh, ad result slot. So if you click on that ad, um, and most people know this, so I'm just, I guess, stating the obvious, but if you click on that ad, there's a cost associated to GoDaddy. It's a, it's a cost per click. So every time somebody clicks on the ad, GoDaddy has to pay a little bit of money. And the amount of money that they pay is defined by GoDaddy itself. So we're willing to pay you know, up to a certain amount for somebody to click on the advertisement. The idea being that those people, some of those people that click on it are eventually going to purchase something, right? So the cost that we're spending on the advertisement is made up for in the value that we get from that customer. So if you start thinking about things a little bit differently than just the gross cash receipts that you get from a customer. So in other words, just the amount of money that you make from the purchase that's associated to the, the click or the paid advertising activity, it doesn't really tell you the whole story because perhaps you're only making, you know, a few dollars 
or maybe you're even losing money on that uh, that initial purchase. But for a subscription business, that may not be so bad because we're going to make up that money, you know, in the long term as that customer, you know, continues to renew their subscriptions. So losing money initially may not be so bad. So that opens up an interesting concept of acquisition costs and being willing to pay more for a customer than what they're initially worth, understanding that eventually you're going to break even on that investment and then, uh, you know, hopefully, obviously make a profit. And so if you have a competing business that you're vying for clicks for in uh, search advertising, and one of them understands their customer lifetime value, their long-term value better than the other one, they might be willing to pay more to acquire that customer. And if the other customer does, or the other competitor doesn't know that long-term value, they're not going to be willing to pay as much. So there's a huge, you know, they're missing out on a lot of potential future revenue. So looking at paid advertising uh, in those regards can lead to a, a competitive advantage for a company if they have that information about their customers that their competitors don't. And so this is just kind of restating what I said. You might be willing to pay more than your competitor for those reasons, gives you an advantage and good LTV estimates you can use for all kinds of things, not only just deciding what your pay-per-click bid level is going to be, but you know, overall how much money you're willing to give in to a campaign based on, let's say how long it takes for that campaign to break even. So if you see a campaign based on your LTV estimates that you think is going to break even in a very short amount of time, well, that could be an indicator that perhaps you should fund that campaign um, with more money so that you don't exhaust your funds in that campaign and lose out on the um, opportunity of acquiring those additional valuable customers that you're going to get a return on your investment within the amount of time that you're interested in. So this just demonstrates the, the concept in the form of a graph that we just talked about. So if you look at early on in the customer's lifetime at the, on the x-axis where time equals zero. So that's the initial acquisition point of the customer. The red line is the cost and the green line is the, uh, is the revenue that you get from that customer. So initially early on, we're losing money on that customer, but then you know as you go out into the future, you see that we start to make a profit. So the difference between the cumulative revenue and the cumulative costs would be the cumulative profit for this particular customer. And you can see that there's a certain point in time where you break even uh, on your investment. So uh, in this particular graph, we see that we're breaking even at the 12 month mark. So a lot of GoDaddy's products renew in 12 month uh, intervals. So it, it may be that you don't make any money in, in the first 12 months, but if you're a little more forward looking, you can see that, uh, and you understand you have a good grasp of your customer's potential lifetime value. You can see into the future, you're going to make more money from them. You just have to bear through the first year where you've you know lost a little bit of money. And so you can use that then to set the acquisition costs like we talked about in the last slide. So if you increase the acquisition costs, you potentially increase the if you increase the amount of money that you're willing to pay for a customer, aka you know, acquire them, you may take it may take longer for your campaign to break even, which is good and bad, right? It's bad in that, of course, you would like to see a profit from your customer a lot sooner, but it could mean that you're spending more to acquire that customer at the expense of your competitor. So that's the trade-off with acquisition cost and long-term value. 
So you might be asking yourself at this point, how do you predict lifetime value? Obviously, it's pretty important to do some of the things that we talked about. So you need to be able to predict it. It's not enough for you just to understand, historically speaking, how much your customers are worth. You need to understand how much they're going to be worth into the future. So generally speaking, there are um, two types of business settings context. Uh, one is contractual, which is what GoDaddy does that's synonymous with uh, subscriptions. And so these settings tend to be a lot simpler to model because you can use, there's this model that's pretty uh, simple, but also pretty effective called a shifted uh, beta geometric model. And what this does is you fit a survival curve to a cohort of customers who subscribe to a particular product. And so if you observe that set of customers for a short period of time, you can then extrapolate or generate a set of parameters. It's a parametric model. It's a, based on some pretty well-known statistical concepts. You can fit a set of parameters that tells, you know, that tells you basically the shape of this, uh, this curve that you're trying to model. And so with those parameters, you can generate a prediction. So you use those parameters and you input in whatever time in the future you're interested in understanding the probability that set of customers are going to renew at that given point in time. And then you can multiply that by whatever the renewal price is for the product. And you can arrive unexpected value at that point in time for that particular set of cohorts or that particular cohort. So that's one type of model uh, that we use here at GoDaddy. And there's a whole other setting, which I won't get into a lot of details because it not only is it a, a lot more complex. It's something that I haven't spent a lot of time. Um, example that we alluded to earlier. And so with that type of CLV modeling, you need to be able to model the churn probability in the future. And then also how many in the value of the, uh, the purchases uh, into the future. And there's a lot of indeterminatism in that. So these types of models tend to be a lot more, they tend to be to have more issues than if you're just looking at a contractual setting. So having subscription-based products that your company sells affords quite a few advantages beyond CLB, obviously, but in particular, it, it makes it a lot easier to deal with the, the issue of calculating your, your customer's long-term value. So we talked about the statistical approach where you fit parameters and there's you know pretty well-known functional relationships between the input, which would be the, the survival of a cohort and, and the output, which would be uh, your customer lifetime value calculations, moving more into like what I would consider a black box approach. And this is a, a non-parametric approach where the functional relationship of your input and your output don't have to meet any sort of assumptions. So there can be a, you know, very pathological relationships between the input variables that you're using um, to predict your outcome and the outcome variable itself. But that comes with the with the trade-off of you don't really understand why the model is generating the prediction that it's uh, generating. But uh, what you get is, uh, like I said, more flexibility and, and uh, less assumptions that have to be met for the model to work correctly. And you can also do things like model LTV at the individual customer level. If you remember from the last slide, we talked about LTV from the cohort level. So you basically have to group a set of customers together uh, based on when they purchased a subscription and whatever product that they purchased the subscription for has to be the same for all the members of the cohort. And then every individual member of the cohort would have the same prediction. Now, if you move to more of a, a, a black boxy um, non-parametric approach, you can actually get 
specific estimates for individual customers based on variables that are specific to them. So a few, uh, a few of those would be like the value of their first order. How many products did they purchase? Did we give them a, a discount or not? Um, where are they ordering the products from? What sort of uh, business are they are they purchasing their um, their products uh, to support? So on and so forth. So you can then get these very distinct predictions for all of your customers, but you're going to need more data to do that because there are a lot more interactions between the input and the output. So you're going to need a lot more um, data to be able to to generate predictions uh, to to be able to like partition your customers, so to say, at an individual level, such that there can be a lot of variation in the values of what you're using to make the predictions, such that you can come up with a pretty certain idea for what the actual lifetime value is going to be. And so one way to do that is with an artificial neural network, which I won't attempt to explain in too much detail, <laughs> but uh, essentially the uh, the depiction on the right is, is pretty apt in that you have a set of inputs and you can think of those as the variables that I mentioned earlier. And those uh, inputs all get fed to um, a set of nodes and all the, everything is basically connected together. So what happens is as the input data is evaluated throughout these sets of these sets of nodes, it's very similar thing to what happens in your brain. This is a very loose analog, uh, of course, but still it's based on the idea that the neurons in your brain are all connected together. And depending on how information flows through those neurons, you have different thoughts or memories, uh, you know, what have, whatever, whatever your brain does, it operates through this concept of having all of these different nodes connected together. So when you train the model, the, the nodes get these weights that are applied to the inputs. And then magically on the other end, you get the output, your prediction. So just looking at the visual, you get an idea for how complicated these things can get. And uh, you can have uh, networks. This is a very small example of a network. You can have networks with, you know, many hidden layers, the purple layers, uh, with um, a lot more nodes within the layer, and sometimes thousands, hundreds, or, or even thousands. So um, these start to, these things start to get really complex. And so there's really no way to understand why they're making those decisions. So that's just like a trade-off that you have to accept whenever you, uh, whenever you approach LTV modeling from this perspective, but you get, like I said, a lot more flexible uh, predictions and potentially a lot more accurate, particularly on at the uh, individual level. So getting into, okay, so now you have some LTV predictions and you want to understand if they're any good or not. Uh, and that's for... That's for obvious reasons, right? First of all, you want to make sure if you're making bets on like how much you're spending to acquire customers uh, on your predictions, you want to make sure at some point that those predictions are accurate, right? And that's the problem with predicting the future, the old adage goes, is it hasn't happened yet. So at some point, you have to sit down and observe how your model performs over time. And one way to do that is through this cohort pyramid, as I like to call it. So you can take the predicted values that you have actual that you have had around long enough to have the actual values for, or you can even take your model that you've trained on on you know your data that you have now, and then generate predictions uh, ret retrospectively on the same data. So you can basically what's called backtest your prediction. So you build the the model on the data, and then you generate the predictions uh, using the same data. And then you can take those predictions, since you already have the actual values that you've had to have to train the model, you can then immediately compare them to the actuals. There's a few problems with that, which I won't get into, but there's ways to get around those problems. So the point being, you don't necessarily have to wait a long period of time before you just 
like get a little bit of an idea of um, how your model is going to perform. But uh, what you can do that helps you evaluate more recent data is you could just take in data that you have enough information, you have enough time, enough time has elapsed for you to be able to compare the uh, predictions to the actual values. So you can see here, this would be, and this, this, this is just you know, sort of randomized data. So just take it with a grain of salt. But for the purposes of illustrating the point, uh, it works. So you can see here that for the last month, we have a set of predictions that like, let's say that we generated those predictions 30 days ago, 30 days has elapsed. So we now have the actual values for those predictions. And you can look at things out into time. And you can see here, since we're predicting out to 25 months in the future, we need at least 25 months to have elapsed before we can understand how the model performed uh, across all of the time uh, intervals. And another interesting thing is uh, when you look at data this way, not only can you look at longer and you can look at like older predictions and, and newer predictions uh, together, you can start to see some interesting trends if you pay attention to the values of the uh, of the error rates. And that's what these are. It's the percent different difference between the predicted and the actual. And this pyramid in particular is color coded. So it calls, you know, your eye to it to certain areas. For instance, 34, 33, 34 months ago, the model was substantially under predicting in the first 15 months compared to other cohort time periods. So what's going on there? Well, it could be that there, there could be an outlier. Uh, and, and there could be a customer that we, we acquired or a set of customers that we acquired 33 or 34 months ago that purchased way more than we anticipated, than the model anticipated uh, they should have. And so that explains the, the under prediction. And then perhaps at the 16 month mark, those customers churned out or something like that. So looking at the, the performance in this way uh, allows you to identify maybe problems with your model or even areas where you can go and 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 maybe make some improvements to your your products. Uh, for instance, again, just kind of making things up. If you look at month five here, all of a sudden we're over predicting, right? So what happened five months ago that caused the model to over predict? Well, there could be a lot of reasons for that, but hypothetically, let's say you made a change uh, to a product and all of a sudden people aren't converting or they're not buying as many things or they're not renewing the product. There could have been some kind of, a, the point is there could have been some kind of a change that happened five months ago that the model thought that people were going to purchase more, but they didn't. So that's, that's a diagnostic tool for you to use to go and see, you know, potentially what happened with your products that led the model to overpredict. And so on the right, this is just another way of, of looking at the uh, predicted versus actual errors. And so you can start to see trends based on how old the, the cohort of customers is. So, you know, you can see here that, okay, some of these shorter bars, which represent younger cohorts are tend to be above the 0% mark. So we're, you know, we're over predicting. And then, you know, you can get kind of a feel over time. Okay. Generally speaking, what is the, uh, how do the errors trend and and they tend to trend positive over time so again another way for you to understand your ltv performance and potentially um use it as a diagnostic tool for um, solving actual business problems so looking forward with uh with ltv um, there's actually a lot a lot we've only you know scratched the surface here at godaddy and then also in this presentation talking about what you could use ltv for a few interesting use cases would be like product recommendation. So understanding that a particular customer is going to be more valuable over the long term when they purchase one product versus another it could be a way for you to recommend particular products uh, to your customers to maximize long term value. 
Another use case is um, uh, customer care handling. So if you have customers that you think are going to be worth more money, um, uh, you could handle them differently than you know uh, other customers who may or more you know within the standard distribution of your customer base. Uh, you may want to treat the outlying customers that are substantially worth more um, a little bit differently than you you would everybody else. So these are just a couple of additional ways that one could use LTV. So I'll go ahead and conclude with this. We'll summarize what we talked about. Uh, LTV is a, you know, you can use it as a customer centric metric for actually giving a, a value to a, to a corporation or to a business. If you understand your CLV, it can lead to a competitive advantage. Uh, we talked about that, the uh, knowing how much to acquire a customer for. Monitoring the LTV performance is challenging because you know we are predicting things into the future and you don't want to wait 25 months for you to understand how well your model is performing, but at the same time, you have to. How do you get the best understanding of your performance with the data that you actually have? Um, so that's challenging, but um, there's also some other fruit that that can bear. And there's several obvious and uh, things that we talked about that you could use CLV for. And I'm sure there's a host of other novel applications that we haven't even thought about yet that we could um, use to uh, that we could use CLV to um, take advantage of. And so that's all I got. Awesome. I've got some good questions coming in. I recommend people drop some in as well. But the first one from John, I have read that a healthy LTV over CAC ratio is three to one. Is there any validity to that ratio? And I think I've said it, by the way. So, but you can call me a liar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we used to use, to answer the, I'm going to, I'm going to have to skirt around the question because I'm more, I have more expertise in the actual modeling side. And this is a really great question for the application side and so this would be a question i would have to defer to like one of our business analysts or a, mm -hmm. a business leader who's utilizing the predictions but we've used in the past we've just from what i understand started using ltv to cac as a, a metric to optimize towards and i'm not sure exactly the value that we try to use but in the past we've used uh, months to break even for campaigns as, as an alternative metric to understand your um how much you're making versus how much you're, you know, you're spending to acquire customers. And if I had to, I don't want to mislead you, but a number that popped into my head was two to one. So, but you can take that for what it's worth based on everything else I said. <laughs> I will tell you too, that when we talk about the ratio, it varies a little bit dependent on the type of sales, right? So do you have a, a highly automated web-based sales system or is it more of a consultative sale? but also where you are in the life cycle with your product, right? So frequently when you're, you've got a new market or a new offering, you're going to expect an LTV to CAC to be two to one. If you have something more mature where you're really, you know, it's like a horizon one product where it's mature and you're using revenue from that to, to kind of fund other pieces, then you might see something in the four to one to five to one ratio. So some of it depends on where you are with the life cycle of it. I love, I know you love answers like it depends, but I think that's very true <laughs> that there, the ratio depends on a lot of different factors, but where it's really interesting to see it at both the company level to know where you kind of go against the competition, but also in different divisions of your organization. I think it kind of helps you pinpoint where you've got more maturity. I think another thing too, that people, well, first of all, it's really hard to calculate, but it's important. It was like incrementality. So understanding if that customer would have purchased anyway, despite the, without the advertising, that's, that's like a whole nother, you know, can of worms that probably would bear a whole nother discussion on. Um, and I'm, I don't know a whole lot about it, but I do know that um, sometimes it's difficult to utilize those LTV to CAC estimates when you don't have good um, incrementality estimates. Yeah, that's a great point. 
speaking of what cost you, one of the questions is, is the cost of customer support, call center, agents, blog, help articles, and the tech behind that part of LTV calculations? So th that's a good question. And I'll allude back to one of the earlier slides, which was you make it what you know, you make it whatever you you want. So there's no hard and fast definition for LTV, but those are definitely things that we've consider considered using in our LTV calculations. One of the problems is you have to build a model to model those as well. If you want to have like a true like machine learning approach, you could also estimate those using heuristics or you, you know, much more like simple modeling approach. But then if you have the predictions for LTV that are on an individual level, and then the predictions for the other costs, excuse me, if you have the predictions for like to say the gross long-term value, and then you have the predictions for the costs and you don't have them at the customer level, it seems like there's sort of a mismatch in the level of granularity between the revenue that you're forecasting and then the costs that you're forecasting. So that implies then that you would have to build uh, you know, a similar model that you do for um, the revenue for the costs. So it increases your, you know, the complexity and the and the different amount of models that you have to handle and the support that's required for those. So you kind of have to weigh all that stuff out to figure out if you want to actually include those costs in your calculate your LTV calculations or not. I guess that makes a lot of sense, but you kind of need to balance those sides of it to make sure you're at that same level. Uh, right. Yep. All right. We have we have a scenario question here, Zach. And Bill, at some point, if you wanna if you wanna provide clarity, make sure I get this right. So, this is one of those like in this dream world. Suppose you have three million. You have data on three million customers, on purchases, segmentation of customers, knowledge of what channel that customer came through, and what discounts or promotions have been offered. Mm -hmm. And then this is the part where you're like, oh, this is a lovely thought. It's all big data and it's all clean data, right? right but you yeah. have this data, right? Like, oh, my dreams come true. How long do you think it would take to build a customer lifetime value model and have it ready for production use to optimize customer acquisition? Ooh, that's, this is a good question. So you have 3 million data points, 3 million observations, and you have, so this is, I'm going to assume this is customer specific information. It's not um, cohort. Because the answer depends if you want individual customer estimates, the the answer is different than if you want like a cohort level estimate. So the uh, cohort, just starting out with a statistical approach, the SPG approach, the cohort level uh, predictions, I think the rule of thumb is you need three period renewal periods if it's a contractual setting. So you need to wait three periods before you can fit the parameters and then get you know fairly accurate predictions from that point forward. And, and uh, if you look up work by this guy named Peter Fader, uh, another guy named Bruce Hardy, these are uh, academics at University of Pennsylvania, I believe, they have put forward the mathematics for that SPG model and also some of the you know, rules of thumbs uh, that you would want to use to successfully, successfully utilize those modeling approaches. But if you're talking about a customer level model, if you, if you just have those 3 million data points starting from today, and you want to use a customer level model, the only way that I would know how to do it is you would just have to wait until you get to the point in the future where you want to call that the lifetime of the customer. It's like in our case, we, we say 25 months. So we would need to wait from the point of today for like 25 more months, right? If we wanted to build out estimates for all 25 months. Now, having said that, there's two options to get around that in a way. One is if you have those 
3 million data points from 25 months ago or however many months ago, you know, which would be the, the, uh, the length of your um, prediction horizon, you could build a model on those. Well, so just using GoDaddy's, I'll just frame it around GoDaddy's data. So if we want to predict out 25 months and we want to be able to have all of the actual 25 months values that we need to train the model, we need data that's at least 25 months old. So, you know, you could look at data that's 25 months to 37 months old. That gives you an entire 12 months worth of customers. So you can model things like monthly seasonality. So that obviously uh, comes at a cost because you have 25 months worth of more recent customers who are behaving probably really differently than customers from 25 months ago. So what you can do is if you're using an artificial neural network, you can mask out when you calculate the, the value of the loss function during the back propagation step of the neural network, you can, you can like mask out those values that you don't have for the actuals from the back propagation step so that it doesn't have an effect on the loss metric. So essentially the model will ignore um, those more recent data points for the horizon that you don't have the data for. But if it actually, if you have, if enough time has elapsed so, so that you act, you do have the actual value um, in, in, in um, with respects to the, uh, the customer, It'll, it'll utilize those when it updates the loss function so that you can take advantage of newer data while at the same time using data that's older that you have the, you know, the full horizon of predictions that you need to train the model on. Another thing that you can do is if you don't want to wait 25 months and you don't have any historical data, you could either, let's say that you have, if one scenario is you have like three months worth of data, you could train a model on three months, and then you could look at the, you could look at the trend of the predictions that the model generates, and then you could use any manner um, that you want to extrapolate out those predictions. So you could be as simple as like, okay, you look at a customer's prediction, and since we're doing cumulative uh, long-term value in our um, LTV calculations, it tends to like monotonically increase for the most part. So over time, the customer value uh, increases, and it tends to increase at a linear rate. So you could do something as simple as like, just fit a, uh, you don't even have to use like full-blown regression. You could just fit a line between the first point and the last point. And then that could just be like a naive forecast for the uh, LTV into the future into whatever arbitrary point in the future that you want. And there's a lot of other more sophisticated ways that you could do that. So if you had three months of data, you could do something like that. Or if you, if you wanted, you could wait three months, collect the data and then do something like that. But yeah, there's really no substitute for having um, all of the uh, actual data um, for you to be able to model on. And it sounds like uh, enough periods of data, right? You have a right. lifetime value have to have data outside of that, for sure. Okay, another good question. Questions, love it. What are some of the biggest challenges you think you see uh, yourself or your sort of peers in, in predicting customer lifetime value? Some of the, okay, so some of the biggest challenges are understanding the accuracy because it's really, really difficult, generally speaking, to predict something out for a long period of time because a lot can happen between now and then, right? Especially the further out in the future you go, the more uncertain it is. So in a nutshell, that's the largest challenge is that uh, there's no guarantees that your model is gonna perform very well in the future. Like if you're, um, let's say that you're, you built a model that you're using to predict whether a picture is a, is, has a cat in it or not. Like, you know, you can build the model and then you can uh, you can test it on data that the model has never seen before. And you can get a really, really good idea for like how well that model is going to perform in the wild. But you're taking a lot of liberties by applying the uh, error rates that you observe from historical data data to those that 
to those that haven't happened in the future yet to the you know predicted versus actualized that haven't happened in the future yet so convincing people that the error rates that we see are going to hold true in the future is is probably the most difficult part and then you know even ourselves having the confidence that the predictions themselves are going to be accurate that's the biggest challenge in a nutshell they we can say them succinctly but that doesn't make them easy right and we talked a little bit about this when we talked about the sort of ratio question but how much do you think the sort of is dependent on both the data maturity of an organization in order to do this kind of calculation and then we'll start there but i'm also curious about how much of this varies the the sort of uh, you know, value varies depending on size and industry. Yeah, so that's that's really that's an interesting question because, like, you have to be able to observe your customer behavior to be able to like predict it. And if you're doing things, oh, here's this, this is another challenge. This is this is right up there at the top, which is uh, if you make a change to a product or you 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 change anything uh, and the model isn't retrained after that change happens like all bets are off with your estimates. So if we introduce a new product, like we don't have, we don't have any data points in the past for that product to be able to, you know, for the model to understand uh, what the value of the product is going to be. So uh, this is where like understanding, and this is, this is like a skill or an art, I think that's uh, probably undervalued in data science and machine learning applications in general, which is like feature engineering or understanding what input variables you should include or not include. So one approach a lot of people take is you just throw every variable that you can into the model and then, oh, the model will figure it out. Well, like an instance like this, you may not want to include like very uh, low level variables about a product. Let's say that you have a product taxonomy where at the high level for GoDaddy, you know, we have one category of products, which is a presence. And that's like our website builder product, web hosting so on. And so as you go deeper into the taxonomy, the uh, the number of products that are associated to that level in the, the taxonomy shrinks as you get down to like the most granular level of product definition. So if you're going to introduce a new product and you know that you're going to be introducing new products and but you have enough historical data to to like build a model on, you may want to like choose to use a very high level product field to identify what product uh, the customer has purchased instead of something more granular because if you introduce a new product that's not a part of that hierarchy you know and you're at that level in the hierarchy then you can run into problems because first of all the model doesn't really know what to do with that because it's not a value that it's ever seen second of all if you train the model such that you would just bin those products as uh, unknown that's disingenuous as well right so um i think knowing where to stop in your product hierarchy as you're including those variables in your model to make sure that you account for um, you know, the most general case of products that are going to that you're going to be modeling is one way that you can overcome some of those issues of like introducing new products and and having a little bit more like turmoil in the underlying uh, uh, in, in the products that you're modeling excellent all right i know we're getting up to the end but we, we talked a lot of different things about a lot of different aspects of this and and if you were to if you were to have our listeners just sort of do two things differently if you said okay i know this is a lot there's lots you could do there's big things we could build there's small things what are the first two steps that you would encourage them to do i think well one is uh, advocacy so it's surprising to me that like because it, it seems obvious because i've been steeped in like ltb stuff since i've since for the last four years um or so 
but it seems it would seem obvious to me that oh yeah you know long-term value of our customers that's really important but it's not it's not there's a tendency you, you know especially these days to be a little bit more like short-sighted and on like returns on your investment so i think one thing is to look into um how clb is being used and how um, it's being advocated for in businesses. Like if you look at some of the work by Fader and Hardy, they have some great YouTube videos as well, where they give, you know, like TED, Ted talks, essentially um, advocating for CLB. So I think uh, understanding, you know, um, understanding how CLB can be utilized and how best to advocate for it. And then like advocating for it um, in your workplace or, you know, in your setting is probably the first step. And then, on top of that, the obvious thing is you need data to be able to build the models, right? So if you think you're going to be doing something with CLB in the future and you don't have data pipelines or um, analytics, uh, analytical solutions, analytic solutions that you could lean on or leverage to build lifetime value models on, you're going to want to start like trying to get those in place and advocate for developing those as well. Excellent. I love that. Both, you know, make sure you understand and can and advocate for the strategic value of this, uh, both, you know, that you can sort of sponsor it internally and support, but then also, like you said, you need that data. And hopefully it's magically cleaned and in good shape. <laughs> That's where everybody wants to be. Awesome. Maybe one day. Thank you. Thank you so much, Zach. And there was so much good data here. As a reminder to everybody that you'll be able to see the recording and the presentation. Uh, we're also going to send out an ebook, and then I know that Ingrid and team have also dropped the link into our assessment uh, there. So you can kind of, and it's really interesting in these conversations and the to see how our data maturity of our organization, both the understanding, the strategic use of, even the cleanliness compares to to other organizations. It's an always always a fun way to see how you go. But uh, and Zach, if people wanted to reach out to you, or I, you've named a couple of good resources, books that they could reach out to. Do you have uh, anywhere that you would do that? Well, you can, um, an email address, would that work? Email, LinkedIn? Yeah, so I'm in. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn, Zach King, and uh, my <clears throat> GoDaddy email address is zking, Z-K-I-N-G, at godaddy.com. Oh, and I'm happy to answer any questions that anybody has on LTV. All right, thank you everybody for joining us. Don't forget to check out our data chat series. We have some other great conversations. If you wanna learn more, uh, both sort of about how to take some of these skills that you have and it's good, but also to really bridge those with the strategy of the organization to help you present your work, help you kind of have a larger impact in there. I would absolutely encourage you to, to attend Business Driven Data Analysis. If you wish that your leaders understood more the power that your data team has and also some of the realistic trade-offs and limitations, then I would definitely send them to the Data Science for Business Leaders course as well. But thank you, Zach. Thank you, team, for everything you do behind the scenes. And thank you all for coming to join us. Thank you. Thank you.